Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. We've got another catch-up episode for you this week. We've got uh, Michael Morrow, who's back in the lower 48. Just this morning. Probably. Just got back here yeah, at 7 a.m. Back in the lower 48. Yep. Jason Loftus, back at home in Utah. How are you doing, Jason? Doing good, doing good. A little warmer than I would like it to be here, but, you know, doing good. This is the... F- this is the first time in the last three months that we've had a 40 mile an hour wind and I've been happy about it because I have not been able to get to the grouse lex because it's so muddy and nobody wants you out there tearing up their pastures. So the wind is drying things out quickly. So I think I'll, I'll be able to get out tomorrow. And we've got the long lost northerner. Mark Raycroft back with us tonight. Mark, how are you? I'm doing fine. I'm looking forward to spring. It's been a fun, busy, crazy, unusual winter, but still here, man. It's all good. It's great to see all three of you. It's great to be on here with you. Uh, If you're looking at YouTube, you know, winter's been a little rough on Raycroft, but, you know, a little bit of a trip to the spa will help. Anyway, it's uh, it's great to see you guys, and, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys have been doing and catching up a little bit. Yeah, I, I meant to say the long-lost and incredibly busy Mark Raycroft, uh, because you've been, you've been hard at it for a while. Everybody's busy, brother. It's, it's uh, yeah. Everybody's got their projects, keep things floating. But yeah, no complaints. It's been a very, very exciting project. That we've just wrapped up, so I, I look forward to sharing some of those details with you guys and the, and the listeners because it's been uh, very consuming for the past few months. Yeah, I think started in late 2021, right? Yeah, it began actually. Well, it it was in October. Are we are we going there now? Yeah, we might as well. You want to jump right into it? Okay, let's jump right in. All right, all right, we're jumping in. Um, you know, some of my favorite projects as a, as a professional wildlife photographer and, and author and biologist are those that encompass a body of work. And, well, I, I've always dreamt of those as far as a career, um, most memorable aspects of a career because it's a body of work. I love working with all my clients and every image that's published, I'm grateful for, every single one, obviously. But the magazines, for instance, or um, even online, any they all have a shelf life, a certain amount of time, and it's usually one or two or a, a small series of images, whereas books are, you can look that word up in the dictionary. It means uh, a printed product with a whole bunch of pages with images on it, and it comes all as one unit. It's a, it's a book. You know, as rare as they are these days, as, a, as somebody who works on certain species in depth, it's super rewarding to put together a volume of work encompassing that animal and their life history and everything about them biologically, historically, present day, and, you know, conservation in the future. And there's a whole, whole aspect, all different aspects to putting a book together. And it's something that 
you know, I, I, I've loved to do. I've only, I think um, this is my fourth complete book that I've done all myself. And, and this one's a little different. And then I partnered up with my wife, Pilly, who is always been, she has always been my best editor. And, and she is extremely articulate compared to this chap here. And so, and she's been on many trips with me, obviously, over the years, not so much when the kids were younger, but since the kids are growing up, she's been on more, almost all of them in the past couple of years and shared a lot of time with these animals and helped a lot, contributed a lot. In fact, we, we divided the book up by chapter for the most part and, and did our own chapters and then merged those together. And then I added anecdotal stories from the field because I believe that really is important to give the flavor of the experience and why it resonates so much to be with these animals and, and doing my best to share the excitement of observing them, photographing them, filming them, and just being in, in their company in, in that part of the wilderness. So there's a lot of stories throughout the book as well. And I, most chapters I try to start, just like the moose book was, with an anecdotal story from the field. Not all chapters, but most of them. There are a couple chapters that are that just didn't make sense to do that. But it's been a fun project. And, and so it's... I've done two books on deer, white-tailed deer, uh, and I did a book on moose, and this one is on caribou. So it's very timely in as far as what's happening globally. I mean, there's a lot of shifting in our environments and our climates, and caribou, believe it or not, you know, they're, they're magnificent, but they're kind of out of sight, out of mind, because they're, they're, they mostly inhabit parts of, of our world that we don't spend a lot of time in as people. It's either inhospitable or uncomfortable. It, it, it's a challenge to get there. You know, seasonally, there's times you wouldn't want to necessarily be there in July when the, when the bugs are high. But what these animals live through annually and, and with some of the subspecies, the massive migrations and what's happened over millennia, the trails you can see on the tundra, it's, it's, there's a lot, there's a wonderful story to be told about these northern antlered ungulates and how they've survived and then of course getting into the current state of where they're at and where you know some of the populations are now extirpated or extinct and other ones have crashed just unbelievably in population numbers there's a lot of people conservation organizations and interested individuals who are trying to educate the public as to what's been happening with these, with all of them, but especially the most vulnerable populations. So to research and document that, coupled with all of my years working with caribou, which you know began 20 years ago uh, with my first trip to Alaska, and the Alaska wilderness, as as you guys know, and, and as so many of our listeners know, is, I mean. For North America, it's it's absolutely breathtaking the, the diversity of landscape and then also the wildlife. And my trips to Alaska weren't usually just to target caribou, but the, it was you know there's grizzly there are grizzly bears there are moose there are dull sheep there are wolves. You can might get lucky and see a lynx, but days spent with a small herd of caribou are among the most memorable. They all, all these species have their highlights, but it really is a treat to be there with, with caribou and, and, and be able to move along with them 
in, in their environment. So it, it goes from that, and then obviously there's a, it's a, there's a little known secret place that I don't tell anybody about called Newfoundland, where I've also spent time in the past, uh, what was it? well, it's 15 years I've been going there, I believe, and have had good fortune finding woodland caribou there and, and just had some incredible experiences over the years. And, and that was what completed the book because it, it allowed me to cover one end of the continent to the other, but also document so much behavior for the species. But an interesting um, spin on it, you know, so because I work with so many of these publishers frequently, I, I pitched the project and, and the publisher, you know, we were just, we just, we were still in the field. And I was like, this is going so great. And I had correspondence with him for another subject. I'm like, how about a caribou book? He's like, yeah, let's do it. I'm like, oh man, okay, I love it. You know, when it's that easy, right? And he's like, would you like to release it for uh, fall 2023? What year are we in, guys? 2022, right? Is that right? Still 22, okay. So fall, so far, it could skip, right? We might, by the end of this podcast, it could be 2025. I, I... So, in yeah, so fall 2023, so, and Pilly and I are like, sweet, that's great. We have some things that we like to map out and photograph to flush out everything we want for the publication to be all-encompassing. Well, I and he said, let's have a phone phone call in two weeks when you're back in your office. So I phoned him and he's like, well, how about this? Let's, let's release it September, 2022. And can you write it in two months? I'm like, what? Pardon? You know, and that's, that's often been the case. I mean, the moose book was two months, but I, I had actually the moose book. I was assigned it in August and had until the end of autumn. So that gave me fall to do a couple of destinations to cover subspecies I hadn't had for the book while I was writing it. Whereas this was kind of launched at the end of October and I was planning to do one more trip if snow arrived in time in Newfoundland, but it's such a tight window because caribou are the first to drop their antlers, the mature bulls or stags. And it can be like the second week of December it's uh, or even early December. So, it's timing-wise, uh, we didn't get back out while we were writing it. So the difference for this book, which was, uh, makes sense to do nowadays, we had hoped to have time to do a few more things with Caribou for this project, but it didn't allow for it. We had two months, and there's a few reasons to get this done because what's happening with Caribou populations, we wanted to cover it sooner than later. And the publishing industry is like any other industry. Things just, you know, you want to time it when... It's quiet out there for the subject, too. So we decided to move it up, but meant that I'd have to source images that I didn't have. So the Moose book, I think I only added uh, two images to it. Uh, Michael Moros and Missy McKenzie's, if I remember correctly, were the only ones added to that book uh, because I didn't have representative for that subspecies of moose in Colorado. And so they graciously provided those. But for caribou... I was lacking essential images to show aerials of massive herd migrations. And that would be something I would love to do and see, but obviously the timing didn't allow for it with this project. And, and the cost to doing that personally, you know, wouldn't be supported by a, a book. 
and it would be very expensive to probably do. So I sourced those images and then I sourced some from a couple of friends for same idea, subspecies I didn't have. Um, Simone uh, Heinrich from Jasper, uh, she's on Instagram, a great photographer. She has photographed the, a very endangered caribou herd in the Tonquin Valley in Jasper National Park, Alberta, a very important herd to uh, cover and discuss. And so I sourced a couple of images from her. And then Eric Brewer, a great friend of the podcast and close friend of mine, had uh, caribou recently from northern British Columbia to represent that mountain caribou population, northern mountain caribou population there. So we could illustrate them and, and people could see what each of these subspecies look like in the book. And that's important to us as well as the big aerial migrations. So it's been a, it's been a fast project, but very intensive and, and just, uh, and rewarding. I mean, it was, it was quite something to come to the realization of what's happening with caribou and the complexity of the species, but also, you know, how vulnerable they are to these, to these changes in the climate. So it's, it's been very, very meaningful project. And it's just, yeah, it's come to conclusion and, and off to press. And by the time this podcast airs, I believe I'll have on the website the link for pre-orders for the book. From what I've been informed so far, it's going to it will be released in September of this year and it will be $24.95. It's going to be the same dimensions as the Moose Book, for those that are familiar with that, and will be available everywhere. But for those listeners who would be interested in a personally signed copy, that'll be available in the link on, on the page on my website at markraycroft.com or on the link in my Instagram bio, direct link there. And it'll be more expensive, obviously, than buying it in the store. It'll, it's uh, $35 plus $10 shipping. Or sorry, fifteen sorry, fifteen dollars shipping, and that's our hands are tied on the shipping. Obviously, the extra ten bucks as well. It's a matter of running it around, right? And it's personally signed. We've got to take them to the post office and and package them up and ship them. So we've charged that, but it'll be right out of the fresh first box that we get for those that order pre-order, and they'll be personally signed to whoever um, sends orders it off the website, which can be done automatically, or um, can DM me and, and, and do it directly to, with me as well. If it's to be made out to somebody other than the person ordering it, make sure to tell me that. I had one great photographer, gentleman, uh, order one. He ordered two moose books this, this year, thank you, because he ordered it, and then he meant to order it for his wife's birthday. So he ordered a second one for her. So that's fine with me. But if you want it for someone else... Let, let me know. But the Caribou book will be fantastic, and, and you'll see some information on on my website through those links about it. So how many caribou species are there then, subspecies? You know, you're not, you're not supposed to ask me these questions on the spot like this, but um, it's, it's variable. It's kind of all over the map. There are those that say nine. There are those that say 14. And, of course, a lot of these subspecies overlap. So you can see on various maps, and we have a map going into the book um, that'll show that. So it, it's, um, it, there's no concrete biological answer, like I said, but most say 9 or 11, but there are, there are those that say 14. 
There are some that say seven. So is it mostly geographic then, or is it? Are there traits that they exhibit that make them different? Uh, it's a bit of both. It's mostly a genetic DNA uh, testing that they attribute to the difference. There are structural differences, minor ones, across the geographic distribution of the species. You can see a difference between the mountain caribou in British Columbia and the woodland caribou in Newfoundland, just in coat color. Yeah, the barren ground caribou look different subtly, really. I mean, there's color variation to the woodland caribou in Newfoundland again, whereas, you know, Newfoundland caribou are a little more brown, a little um, more white on them and a bit stockier. And the antler formations have some variance, but when not a tremendous amount, surprisingly, but you can get, you for a trained eye, you can see variances, generally speaking, for some of the populations when they're spread out, like Northern Quebec versus Alaska or Alaska versus Newfoundland. You can, you can pick up on the subtleties, but as far as looking like a caribou antler for a mature bull, there's a lot of similarity. You know, you've got the, the shovels or the brow tines and, you know, often on a, on a mature bull, there'll be a pair and that's like a nose guard for when they're sparring, it protects their nose. And then they have the second ones that come off the main beam are called a bez and they sweep forward like two palms of the hand. And then the antlers curve up in a big C shape to the top. And then there's more tines coming off, off of that. And then they vary in width, they vary in height, you know, just like most other antlered animals do from one individual to another. At one time on another podcast, you said that you didn't think that mountain caribou were a genetically identifiable sub subspecies. Is that, has that changed or is that just because most people do identify them? And so you wanted to cover that difference in your book. Again, you know, when you get into the specifics, when you look at these subpopulations, if they're not isolated, so the Northern Mountain Caribou of BC that might go into the Yukon or Southern Alaska, and then it's not too much of a hop, skip, or jump to the um, Barren Ground Caribou further north, there's, they can interbreed. I mean, the reindeer in, in, in Scandinavia, I mean, it's the same species. They are, but there's just these subtleties. As far as the DNA genetic makeup from one to another, I mean, we did get quite specific with all kinds of aspects of biology and, and conservation and behavior for the species in this book. You know, we have all the species, subspecies names itemized and to get that, that uh, be that thorough. But as far as comparing one DNA to another, of these subspecies to verify their actual difference, you know, we, we didn't have that. Just, it's just, it, w it was too, it'd be too much, too much science, science. And also, um, it'd be an interesting project, you know, I'm sure for somebody who is doing a PhD on caribou or, you know, is specializing in caribou in some way, it would be, it would be very interesting to itemize that, to see that, but there's, there's so much overlap in some of these ranges that there's interbreeding happening. And so where do you draw the line? Where do you say this is different? Okay, well the DNA and, and the sample size of 40 animals from Northern British Columbia had, had this different genome than the 50 we sampled in the central Yukon, but all the other aspects of the DNA is the same. Do we, you know? But it could just be that they're genetically isolated. It could be. Depending on where they're at. It could be that. 
Um, yeah, that's, that's often the case, you know, as mutations happen and a population continues to reproduce and evolve and with lifespans being, you know, relatively short as they are, then yeah, that can evolve, but, and it is usually how, how it does. But, um, yeah, we, I, I didn't itemize the DNA makeup that way because it really, right up until the conclusion of the book, it was like, these lines of where these subspecies and these populations are deemed to exist. I mean, some of them like Newfoundland is obviously isolated for the most part. I mean, there is a part of Northern Newfoundland where they, they could, if they wanted to swim to Labrador, I, I think it's nine kilometers across the narrowest part. I mean, you can see it. I, I have not heard of a caribou getting the desire to go and do it. And, and maybe some years it freezes right across, but, for the most part, there are populations that are isolated, and it's it's just very interesting, you know. It's some of the trends in migration and why caribou migrate when they do, and how it's learned and how it's passed on from one generation to another, and which caribou start the migration and what triggers all all these aspects about about the species really make them interesting far more than you you just guess glancing at them. And so that combined with, you know, a lot of the really unique experiences that we've had with them, as anybody who would spend months with caribou and all of you who have had time with caribou, I mean, things, any wildlife, you, you witness stuff that's, you know, very interesting. So piecing that together with the educational science and more aptly natural history, because we want it to be just like the moose book, an easy, enjoyable read. But, you know, the, the reader walks away knowing a tremendous amount about the species and it was an engaging enough text that they, they happily read it through, you know, quickly, enjoyably. Going back to your definition of books, since you were, since you were just talking about book, I have heard rumors that there are actually books with no pictures in them. I've never personally read one, Oh, I don't. I, but I have heard yeah, that they're I, out I, there, but I think the, I think the uh, natural history books like, like your moose and your and your whitetail books, those are so st strong because of the imagery that's that accompanies you know the information that you're passing out and trying to get out to folks. And I I think that uh, yeah, as far as natural history goes, you you almost have to have images that accompany yeah the information. So I have one question because I've been working on a kids book. And started with, yeah, talking about genetics, and I'm looking at you at this uh, hat <laughs> Take, I'm taking my hat at off. You, I'm getting, third I'm eye, getting hot. The third eye in the middle of your forehead. So, um, so working on this kid's book, and I started with about 250 images. And that was just, you know, going through and very specific. So with a, with a work that's this complex and this involved – you're basically, you know, as you started out with, it's it's basically your body of work with caribou. How many images do you start with before you, as you start to whittle it down? Wow, that's a good question. And I hadn't thought about presenting it that way. And as a, you know, for the love of wild and exposed photography podcasts, it makes sense because when you do these projects, it's the challenge of telling a story, as we've all talked about in our own areas, right? It's how do you tell a story and with a book, it's the combination of 
informative, engaging text. But you're right. I mean, it's the images that sell the book and, and get you know, create the interest in it. So you need my. This is what I love most about these projects. These bigger projects is taking that library and creating a story that that flows with the text. You know, unique experiences and and writing about them in the text, but having the visuals to collect to get the attention to to, to just um, that's that's the whole. That's honestly, that's the most fun, but it's a challenge because it's got to flow in a, in a fashion that works with the text, with the content. So it's mapping out what we're going to be talking about, but also making sure that those highlight images that really engage the audience with that species are included. And, and then, and that's where, you know, I, I think I sourced 20 images for the book as well to make it as I mean, my goal, like with the Moose book, is is at right now to try and make it the most, the the best caribou book out there, the most engaging, and for the for the price, the most enjoyable book to to get people interested in caribou and and but yeah, they're they're just really a phenomenal species, but yeah, so it's a matter of of laying out images and as far as quantities. I man, you know, we can at something else. Mirrorless cameras. I'm I'm loving, 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 loving mirrorless cameras, and they're the well. The one I've been using has been the R5, and I honestly can't say enough good things about this camera and and what it's brought to the my photography game. But there is something new. I mean, I love how I love silence because I mean we're there in that moment. As much, and I've, I've said this on a previous podcast, as much as the, the sound of the motor drive, whether it was film or DSLR, has its own adrenaline. Oh, okay, it's going. We can hear this, this, the images being taken. Yeah, you guys will keep me, you know, right? Right? So, but the silence of the mirrorless, the audio, the audio you're hearing isn't interrupted. And it doesn't interrupt it for the animals, doesn't interrupt it for the photographer, and it just makes that moment that much more natural. But the twist on that is I still have my R5 set at high motor drive, essentially. You get a lot of pictures, guys. Yeah, a lot of pictures. And, and I find that the success ratio, I mean, it jumped tremendously from slide film to digital because we could see what we were shooting on the back of the camera and make adjustments. You also have the, the post-processing stuff that you can do. And by the way, your your quiz episode a few weeks ago, off the charts, guys, with Drew Hamilton, I loved it. And it was phenomenal. Awesome, awesome content. Um, and with, with and I just, I just remember you saying something about, about that in the mirrorless in that one, I think. But the... It's a matter of editing. We have a higher percentage turnout on the mirrorless than even the DSLR from what I've been collecting. Super sharp. The 1 to 500 and the R5, I mean, that combo, I love it. Not paid by Canon. Come on, Canon. Um, but it's a lot more editing. So it's hard. You know, I have thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures on this R5 way more it's like uh, three times what i would have had on my dslr on shoots but i it's just the way i've been using it so far but i i, I can't really say because even in this book there are 
maybe two, I think two slide scans, two or three, because of, of just telling the story of my very first experience with caribou was one of my most memorable, and it was on slide film. But the scan, it looks great for the size of reproduction. We had a few in the moose book too. So some were used from back then. Most have been in, in the past four years, but there's a lot from Alaska over you know all the trips that I've done there because of the behavior, because of the different subspecies, different habitat. And putting a project like this together, even, even if you shrink it down to do a, a photo essay for a magazine, you know, visual diversity, behavioral diversity, close-ups, uh, environmental portraits are all important to, to have a visual stimulus to move along to keep the viewer engaged from start to finish. And so that's one of the fun things about a book as well is, you know, having a mountain vista shot versus an ocean side or a close-up of a cute calf versus, you know, a, a, um, a contrasting dramatic image of two mature bulls sparring, stuff like that. So it's really, it's a, it's a treat and an honor to, to do a project, in my mind, that lays out a body of work over all that effort collecting it. But it was thousands and thousands of images, you know, taken, obviously, over the years. And I actually, it's a good, I, I'm not sure how many, pictures we have in the book it's just we're just so this is going to press now but the final layout because of the way the podcasting world works this will be out in a few weeks i assume the layout's going to float past my desk in the next day or two before going to press so i, I think it's the moose book it, it's it's way more than the moose book I, we fit a, a lot more into it it's and it's primarily it's primarily a visual book funny story real quick i i've uh and i sent you i think something about it so you're aware of it but i was out in the middle of nowhere in yellowstone national park actually outside of the park and uh came across a little coffee shop that had a bunch of your books in there it was kind of fun to see <laughs> to see those there and then actually there was a fan there of the show that was actually buying one of those books at the time so it was kind of cool i received those did you sign it jason I did. Jason not. Loftus for I, Mark Raycroft. I I offered to, but she wasn't having it. So <laughs> at the same shop, you can get sausage bombs, and they are the yeah. Bomb. Ron, you get to experience that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got to see Mark's. Mark had a whole section carved out there. Yeah, that was a sweet moment yeah. because I received a message from her as well that day. And that, and she, she oh, said she had the wonderful privilege of meeting you, and uh, the coincidence of how that unfolded. <laughs> so, yeah, ab absolutely love love mm -hmm. hearing stuff like that from the podcast audience. And yeah, it was a, it was a treat to see, and and it's nice to, you know, as somebody who sells stuff like books, to see a whole bunch of them there presented, so that you know it, you can't miss them is fantastic. Versus going into a a giant bookstore and going to the nature section and just seeing a spine of a book that, you know, how many people are going to see that the cover has got to be there and pop and, you know, entice people to pick it up. So that, yeah, that was wonderful to see. It was like, yes. You mentioned shooting with the R5 and I think there's a few folks out there that are wondering what Mark is going to do now that the Z9 is out and, <laughs> Where 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 is Mark going with the mirrorless journey? I received a lot of a lot of messages when that happened, and in fact, I 
that morning, um, when it was released in October, or or the pre-order opportunity was publicized, I was in the field with Caribou in a place I had cell coverage, and I I was sitting down because they were bedded, and I was just doing the phone thing, and oh, that's so wrong. Rarely happens, but you got to check email, right? So if if somebody needs an image that day, that's my excuse. I have to be able to deliver it. Um, but yeah, I, re- I saw that, so I immediately started researching it and even phoned my retailer about it. And he knew about it, and I, I asked him if I could be the first on the list if I decided to order it. And he said, yeah, because it's just happening. So that evening, I watched, there's a whole bunch on, on YouTube by different people who, who had, up until that point, a chance to review a prototype and shoot it in the field but hadn't been able, I don't think, to publicize their content until the official announcement that day. So there was a bunch come up on YouTube. Uh, Jared Poland, Frono's Photo, mentioned him a, a lot. You know, he, he shares a lot of insights that I enjoy on his, his show. He was one. And I watched enough content that the Z9 looked really impressive. And I think most of those YouTubers summarized it like, welcome back to the game, Nikon. But it didn't leapfrog the R5. I'm sh- it has some aspects that may be superior in some ways to the R5s, but no- nothing that enticed me to switch. You know, Pilly and I, we were, like I said, filming Caribou at that time, and we thought about it, but it's like I was still learning the R5 at that point. So we'll give this kit a little more time. And now, being, you know, four months later, I love the R5, and I'm not... I mean, I've been Nikon, was Nikon for over 25 years. I mean, obviously I started when I was two because I'm so young, but <laughs> it's, uh, I, I love all my Nikon gear. I, I never had a camera that I was disappointed with and only one lens over all the years of different lenses that I wasn't a big fan of. Nikon was fantastic, but it just fell too far behind. I, and had the opportunity last fall to do some trips. I, I wanted to have a, a better hybrid system, and the R5's uh, proving to be that. And so, I, yeah, I have no intention currently to switch back to Nikon. I am looking forward to hearing what the R1 will be. I'm excited about, you know, is Canon going to, you know, raise the bar, hopefully, on, on everybody at this point, and, and what that, and so that could be the the go-to camera, but for now the R5 is doing everything I need. And I, I, yeah, my actual, we're going to do pro tips later maybe, my pro tips about something about the R5. I do have, I do have a question for you guys though, because you've all been shooting Canon for a long time, a lot of experience with their products and their lenses. And I've tried to research this and I haven't found a definitive answer for the lens. And on, like, Nikon has, I think it's called normal and sport for what they call the vibration reduction, the image stabilization in the lens. Canon has one, two, and three. Now, I've watched various YouTube, and I've kept mine on one because that seems to cover all the movement options in the whatever direction it might be. I'm not sure if that's as a wildlife photographer who's standing, kneeling, doing somersaults, rolling, running through brush. Is that the right setting, guys? Is it one that you would use yourselves? 
I keep mine on three. <gasps> <laughs> and I'm going to mix it up even more. I keep mine on two. <laughs> what? <laughs> Who's okay? And I don't know that I have an answer for you. I I used to know this, but I. You've slept since then. Three, three. I have slept since then, and I rode this stupid bike, and I can't remember anything now. Um, <laughs> three supposedly covered both directions. Hmm. Uh, one was for. One was for um, horizontal landscape. Yeah, landscape pan two was vertical. And then three was a little bit of both. That's what I heard. I don't know I that I, that's I true. heard that I heard one was photographer, both. not from Canon. Okay. Yeah. Well, can we throw this out to the audience then? Yeah, we're going to have to. Let's do we need, that. We need a Canon rep to call us and explain Chaz? the difference between. Joe? Guys? One of those guys. Yeah. They're probably screaming at us right now. <laughs> probably. <laughs> well, it's good to know. I mean, they're they probably shut options. it off. <laughs> that would have been a good uh, trivia question. Yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> yeah, it would have been. And then I'm not sure. I'm not sure Chaz is not the one that covered this hmm. um, at a at a workshop that I went to with him. However, I can't say that I remember the conversation well enough to. I think they change it every year. Ah, right. <laughs> They're like Instagram. They're always changing. Yeah. Damn. Well, let's, yeah, but, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll hear. Obviously, I mean, to be honest, three of us had three different responses, and I don't think any of us are disappointed with the quality of image that we're getting or the sharpness of the image that we're getting. So I don't think that there's a bad answer. Right. And I, I definitely you're thinking about enough during a shoot that I don't want to be switching from one to two to three. So I just leave that thing alone because, you know, I don't have anything to complain about. So, right. Yeah. I'm the same. It's been fantastic. Uh, but I just, there's been so much fine tuning for the R5 settings. I just wanted mm -hmm. to make sure I was optimizing the lens as well. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. happy with what's coming out of it for sure. The only complaint I have about it is it it uh, zooms the wrong way, right? You have to rotate it the wrong <laughs> way, which I'm 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 getting used to. And what I mean by that is Nikon's the opposite. So I was just second nature for me to zoom in or out by rotating clockwise versus counter counterclockwise. So it's now I'm I'm becoming more used to it. It'll be second nature eventually. But otherwise, it's been fantastic. Yeah, so small. I mean, yeah, super light. Even with the even with the battery grip on it, it's super light. Yeah, yeah, I can't talk about that yet. It's something to do with my pro tip. Thanks to Joe Sobolewski. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm using one of his tips. <laughs> but so okay, that's good to know. I'm sure we'll hear on that. But in the autofocus, I've been loving it too. I mean, nothing's perfect, but for uh, once that eye is visible, if nothing breaks. Uh, this, the visual between the eye and the camera it seems to just lock on super well. I mean, compared to what I was used to of having to move the little cursor around to find that eye, it takes it takes that out, one step out 
as the animal moves, you can keep your composition adjusting to it and the focus is locked. So that's been, I like, yeah, love it. Jason and I, we, well, with, you know, the large ungulates, um, bison, elk, moose that are dark and have a dark eye, it still struggles a little bit. And I tend to go, I tend to switch it to my just single point focus um, when I'm photographing those animals, just so I can keep it where I want it. Um, but we did have that fantastic encounter with a, a red fox on our last trip and that thing locked onto the eye and it would go behind a tree as soon as it popped out boom got the eye again no problem it, i was really impressed with that but it ha it is sometimes a struggle with those darker animals with the dark eyes you know bears also they have such a small eye mm -hmm. and typically it's you know darker on with sure. the dark eyes so, so it's a little bit tougher what does it mean when so you when you do the autofocus and you have the animal um, animal eye on, and it's got that little cube and it grabs it. You can see the little little blue cube or whatever grab the eye. But then sometimes you get a whole array of boxes around the whole head or whole front end. So I assume that it's telling us the operator that it's focusing on that whole area now, not just a little eye. And mm -hmm. you know hopefully if your depth of fields. 6.3 you're good whether it's hitting the nose or the eye is that what you guys feel is what that means as well yeah i think so i think it's a focal I think, it's not quite focus peaking but it's almost a focal plane kind of thing i think it's searching too i think it's telling you that it's hasn't quite got the eye and it's searching it's it's yeah it's not locked okay right it's not locked on the eye so it is probably locked on like you said that area while it's looking for the eye so okay. yeah all right makes sense so, Mark, have you upgraded or upgraded? Have you updated your firmware to the most recent version as well? I the last one I did uh, was a couple of months ago. One one fifteen, one point five. R three came out. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's when it was. Yes, I did that. I I've done it twice since purchasing it. So, did you notice yeah. a marked improvement? No, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> I'm flattered. I'm flattered. Thank you. Yeah. Mark's improving. Yeah. Great. <laughs> I I didn't shoot it enough before that to, oh, okay. to really have a body of work of familiarity with it. And it's the same with the editing question you had a few months ago. Was I, I think about the files and I'm fine with the files through post, mm -hmm. you know, Nikon has its reputation and uh, no issues there, but I, so far, for winter scenes and settings, I, I like the R5 as much or more sensor-wise. I haven't tried it through all different color schemes, but for winter, man, it's crisp. Yeah, I really, really like it. The, and the color, uh, the white balances are working really well, the different settings that I use for the Canon. So, yeah, and even things like I used to, all my buddies in the field, there's there are two or three out there who sh have shot Canon all, all these years and... You know, with the Nikons, it was toggle left or right, or you could swipe with your hand, finger on the screen for the newer DSLRs, but to scroll through your pictures. That wheel's kind of fun on the back of the cannon. <laughs> oh, zzz, you can scream zzz, through it. Yeah, yeah, you can make a movie. And with, with shooting so many stills with the mirrorless, it is like a movie. You know. And then if you go to your, uh, well, if you have that front dial set to shutter, when you're when you're in play mode, it'll go 10 
10 frames ahead so you can get through them pretty quick. No kidding. Mm -hmm. Right on. That's a, that's a freebie just for you. <laughs> I'm writing that down. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been fun for sure. Now, Mark, ask him how to get to that menu on the spot here and yes, yes, how to get that yeah, setting set yeah. up. <laughs> I know where it is. It <laughs> might take me a minute. Might to take find me it. a second. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'll have to change my front dial. It's not set to shutter. Oh, you've got, yeah, you've got them switched. I've got, yeah. You just what you get used to setting it, but mm -hmm. yeah, yep, and that's it's customizable. So that's that's another great part. Mm -hmm. It's what you're used to, and you can keep it that way. You just have to fine tune it a little bit. Yeah, lots of fine tuning, so. but it, it, yeah, there's certainly lots of instructional videos on YouTube for all these mirrorless cameras, but the R5 especially, I found lots of, mm -hmm. and some different advice and opinions too. But you just have to try it out yourself, I guess. So what is next? Spring, spring is I. You know, I'm I'm still well, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you you know if you want to throw a curveball, I can just quickly shut it down with a generic answer, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I am still at editing from last fall, and and then and then the marketing that'll tie into that, and then deciding what to do next, and just uh, this. Uh, got yeah a few trips planned and and spring photography and looking forward to that and honestly right now what i'm looking forward to most is getting into uh, my interior algonquin trips this spring just mm -hmm. because it's such a great unplug there's it's you know we're inundated with stressful news these days and i mean we all want to be aware of what's happening and all kinds of issues but it's it's heavy and it's refreshing even, you know, to put on a podcast. Uh, there's this fantastic one, Wild and Exposed, I listen to while I'm editing. And these guys, I just go into another space hearing what they're doing while I'm editing. And it's a break. It's a break from all that noise. It's, a, it's important noise. It's serious. The word you said a minute ago, Ron, going on. But so Algonquin, you know, to go for three to five days and, and just be immersed in the present. And that's something, you know, my, my son, who, who's very insightful, you know, sent me a YouTube clip by, uh, it's a 10 minute clip on Calm, the Calm app. It's a meditative clip that you sit and it goes, you just breathe for 10 minutes. And it's the, the narrator, she's really good because she's like, now you feel your shoulders, relax your shoulders. It keeps you thinking just about that, nothing else. And that's the, that's the goal is to quiet the mind. And these trips, our wildlife trips are like that. All you nature photographers out there, all you wildlife photographers out there know exactly what this feels like. Because when you're photographing an animal or hiking or a bird, you are so focused on what's happening. These other noisy, stressful things that um, preoccupy our minds so much of the time are not there. We get a break. And, you know, there's been more than one wonderful podcast guest over the years have talked about the therapy of nature photography. And this is that kind of case in point. We all need to do more nature wildlife photography just to balance the stress and enjoy our, you know, to have a break. So Algonquin, I'm looking forward to that in the, in the near future. As soon as ice is off the lakes, here's a funny story. If we go in right when the ice is off, 
I am going to look like I'm from the Star Trek Enterprise. I'm going to look so goofy because, you know, live and learn with all kinds of wildlife trips into wilderness. But um, two years ago, my son Andrew and I were sharing a canoe. And honestly, it still scares me to this day. We could have died that day. It was it was so close because we were crossing. The ice had just gone out. We were crossing. And I might have told this story in the podcast. If I, if I have, I apologize. I don't think so. The ice had just gone out. And there were three canoes, six of us going in for three or four days into the interior, about a six-hour trip in through a few different lakes and portages. But the first lake is called Smoke Lake in western Algonquin. Beautiful lake. But uh, it widens at one point and becomes it's, it can be quite it's quite big for a canoe. So if the if there's much wind, you know, it's a challenge for the waves. And our portaging canoes are very lightweight. So we have them weighted down with our gear, so that helps with stability. But they're not, you know, they move around quite a bit. And Andrew and I are not, despite our my trips, not expert canoeists. I, you know, and the other two canoes had already rounded this point, which is a mistake. You know, we all and, and we all learned that. You know, as a team, we stay together. But they'd rounded the point, we're out of sight, and Andrew and I had to cross about a two hundred yard stretch of open water that to the right, to the west where the wind was coming, went on for about half a mile. So the waves, the white caps, were almost coming over the canoe. And the water was still freezing. The ice had just gone out, and we were 200 yards from shore. We never would have made the swim. And we would have had hypothermia and drowned. It happens. You know, almost happens every year to some poor, unfortunate person. And I I was so... Um, moved and frightened by that experience because of what my son means to me. Uh, and so, you know, it's funny. He's, he was 23 at the time. He's like, Oh no, he'd be okay, dad. We would have been okay. And, and I'm like, I don't think so, man. There's no way we would have made it to shore. And so a day or two later, he wanted to freshen up and have a swim at, at the campsite. <laughs> so he got down to his boxers and he goes, the words he said after he came up out of the water, I can't say on this podcast. <laughs> so I, I sat on the shore. I didn't say anything. I watched him. He came back to the site after he dried off and put on his clothes. He said, you know, Dad, we wouldn't have made it. I'm like, yeah, we wouldn't have made it. You know, that would have been it. Sad, yeah. sad story. So my buddy Bill, who I do these with, he's such a, a great planner and, and, a, and a great buddy. He found for him last year. In early in the spring, he found a, a dry suit on online, a, a great deal, and ordered it. And I'm like, what's that all about? I mean, I've had wetsuits on and, and research and stuff I was doing in colder water. Obviously, I knew what a dry suit was, but never thought for these canoe trips we should have one. And they're not cheap compared to a wetsuit either. You know, they're around 1000 or $1,500 for a good one. But, you know, when we were talking about I love these trips so much to do, and I'm not willing to risk life. And when Bill got his, uh, he lives near the Rideau River in Ottawa, and ice had just gone out, so he put it on, went for a swim. And he's like, Mark, I could swam for like 35 minutes and never got cold. So so I ordered one. And the only the best price for the one I could get of one of the rep, more reputable brands is like this bright orange. I look like I belong on the Star Trek Enterprise. <laughs> But, you know, it's got these rubber bands that go around the neck and wrists and, and the feet are in, in, enclosed. 
and it's one zipper. And as silly as I'll look, you know, if we do an ISO trip, it's, it's really, I mean, what's life worth, right? Spend all this money on cameras and mm -hmm. my canoes, obviously more than the dry suit. I mean, I don't want that stress again. So obviously by June when water warms up, you know, and we'll also plan not to cross larger bodies, but some of these things you don't know the day you exit, when you come back out could be, you know, just, and I'm also prepared to stay an extra day or two if necessary. It's not worth the risk, but anyway, that's a fun little story as far as what I'm looking forward to this spring is unplugging in there and you're forced, forced to, when it's just a good time, no stress, I'm not talking about freezing white cap water, just a calm paddle where you're, you're moving your paddle, you're balancing the canoe or you're portaging or you're setting up your tent or you're at the site by campfire with fantastic friends like you guys are to me and telling stories and, and hearing or sharing thoughts. You know, we might have a young guy along with us, a teenager and, and you know, the, the positive role modeling that we can do. All of that keeps our mind in the present and, and really helps try to balance the scales of, of all the other stressors right now in life. So I can't wait to get there out there. And it'd be the same if, if, you know, the three of you guys and I were doing a wildlife trip, which, you know, I'm, I'm hoping will happen at some point this year. And it would mean the same because just each other's company and then the focus on whatever the activity is can, um, occupies the mind enough that it's therapeutic and helpful and, and wonderful. I mean, those are the stories we yeah. all love, right? We, there's so many experiences we've had over the years as wildlife photographers and as all our audience, I'm sure, have had that they just, if you sit down and relive those in your mind yourself or by telling them to somebody else, it's just a great mental space to be in. So that's my spring ambition. Nice. Can I get any longer with my answers? <laughs> Try me again. Try another one. <laughs> what, uh, so what do you have next professionally? Oh, well, you know, I've been doing, honestly, there's a couple, there are a couple of projects and one really, one that I would really, really love to see get launched, but I can't necessarily talk about it. I'll pull the, the Michael Morrow card and say it's top secret at the moment, but I, I would love to love to see it go and, and it would be you know at different stages of our lives and different stages of our careers or even our experiences with our our hobbies uh, you know we we change and become it becomes different for us whether it's experience whether it's our objectives what we're taking away from it what we're hoping to get whether it's you know our our first fantastic lynx picture or wolverine that's still my list right is it just to get the wolverine picture or is it to have a great time with my friends what's what's the goal of that day um continues to evolve so uh, I, this project is you know I, i've done still photography and 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 i still it's what i do my stock imagery is still mm -hmm. the world i play in and work in seven days a week. I mean, I'm fortunate that if something comes up and I need to address it, I can, I can manage my time and take off and do it, that flexibility. But it's a really time-consuming profession that I think for people to make it full-time, you have to be almost obsessive and, and so committed to it 
to do it well enough and and to from my experience anyways maybe other people have had it come more easily and not not work as much and um but it's it's still the stock world is still where i devote my the majority of my time i am enjoying video more i would love to learn more about that like you've been doing ron and I, you know, I admire your, I have from the get go meeting you, your gumption. If somebody says, you know, if there's something that interests Ron Hayes, he's, he's after it. And, you know, it's, it's an admirable trait. You go for it. And, and in such a pleasant way. And even when, when somebody knocks a feet from out from under you, man, it's like you're on the football field, you're back up. It's like, no, no, I'm going for it, you know? So <laughs> no, and if what you've been doing with video I still haven't had time to learn video editing. That's that's on my list. It's like somebody saying, "Pilly's, you know, been taking guitar lessons because she wants that's she wants to challenge herself to learn the guitar," and it's fantastic. I I'd love to be a proficient video editor, and I haven't had time to wrap my head around that. I've subscribed ever since I was in Alaska with with you, Mike, and and subscribed to Adobe Premiere three or four years ago. <laughs> I've been paying every year for it. It's like one of these days I'm going to use this thing. So that's on my list. And as I see cameras, I mean, there's always budgeting, obviously, with life, all, all aspects of life. You know, when I, the new Reds came out and that kind of stuff, it's like, you know, it's there's temptations or interests. But I, I've been, I've been camera trapping. It'd be fun to try. Some of the images I've seen on social media of wildcats on a snowy mountainside with stars in the background, it's like, man, that's just unbelievable image. And to set the camera up, to plan that, you know, it's a whole other um, um, type of engagement with the camera. That would be fun. I've been having fun with action cameras for what it's worth, to be honest, uh, as well. That's that I, I they are a great great tool i mean it's it's not as expensive to put one of those in your bag but you can get some unbelievable stuff with an action camera if you're just thoughtful about your placement and thoughtful about what you're doing with it yeah they're a fantastic tool it was um i had a, i've had a lot of fun with them this year lots of disappointments but that's the challenge right and that's why you know yeah. i have more i have more than one Right, we've talked about that on the podcast because uh, I had one, two or three years ago out, and Eric and Debbie Brewer were with me. And after a few days of my trying to get uh, the kind of footage I was striving for on my action camera, Eric just kept calling it my no action camera. It's like <laughs> they go the other way over and over and over. So I picked up a second one. I'm still just operating with the two, but I, I've had a lot of fun with those. But I've been learning. Not all species react to them the same way, obviously. You know, you'd love to put one out in front of a bear along a salmon stream, but you've got to recover that. And what's going to happen, right, Mike? I mean, bears are too intelligent and inquisitive. Inquisitive, yeah. Yeah, sure. so, but what I had fun. I, I had found a, a new place this winter to photograph white-tailed deer, and I, it was just by luck. I found a wintering yard of about 300 animals in, in a stretch of about five kilometer um, area. And there were these fields that would go and feed at night. They'd come out of the hidden bedding areas out of the brush and feed. Now, the action cameras, um, 
you know, I've used them on all kinds of ungulates and they could care less. You know, it's just a matter of whether it's like you said, Ron, positioned properly. Mm-hmm. And, but whitetail deer, I mean, if anybody should know this, it should be me. You know, I've worked with them since I was a kid. Uh, they've been, you know, my, my longest subject to photograph, but there's, uh, so I, what it would do was I would, the trails in the snow that they'd migrate from their hidden day bed to the feeding area in the evening. And I put the action cameras on naively, firstly thinking I'll set it up and they'll jump it. It's going to be fantastic. They're all just going to be one after another jumping over this camera. Oh, I can't wait to watch this, you know, and nothing because they would come up to it. At first I had them on, uh, on, um, the bendable, I don't know what you call it, but it's got all those articulating balls, right? Like arm a with a clamp jobu or a gorilla pod or yeah jobu, yeah. and so the camera be on that well that's big right to something as sensitive as a deer what's that black snake-like thing there on my trail that wasn't in the snow yesterday they pick up on that but then there's also scent which is something i didn't pay attention to and i all i often do uh, wind is important for skittish animals and so you know i always position a, my hide or blind in a place where I factored that, but for these, just holding it with my bare hands was a mistake. And it was so entertaining because a fawn would come up and go, Oh, I smell you. Okay. Just go by. It would pass. But anything over a year old would just like come to a certain point, look totally relaxed. And all of a sudden freeze. It's like, oh, somebody's here. And just, and then, and then some of them would be curious enough. They'd go, go and then jump, like just jump back, you know, but none of them would, just gracefully fly over it, go over it, go over it. So that was a fun experience. I got some footage that was uh, entertaining because of the antics that went on when they started backing up. Like if there were 25 animals, the first couple of stop, and then they all kind of bump into each other. It's like, what's wrong? What's what? what? And they're all looking. And anyway, but it wasn't the footage I was going for. But they've been a lot of fun. And and then the, the engineering setups to make them work. You know, a large enough memory card, fully charged battery. But even with that, you know, I've got an hour of playtime. It's below, it's, you know, below freezing temperatures. So that factors in. So I, I plug in, I ended up having to hide it in the brush on a small clamp, Mm -hmm. but I'd also have to plug in a spare uh, battery charger and, you know, one that is solar I have got, not that it needed it. It's lots of charge so that it, it could actually run for three hours. And I don't want to go back and leave more scent. I go in quickly and I clamp it, but I'd have to do it somewhere where there's a bit of brush. But because they're so wide angle, it's a challenge because you have to be that close to where they are to get the quality of footage I was looking for. So I would, and then you have to, I'd have to hide the battery pack somehow in the brush too, so that it didn't stand out as some foreign cube to them. So that, that's been fun this winter. And then just, for that, for me, I mean, to conclude the day watching the sunset and having 150 deer in a field was just such a unique. I put a I put a little video on Instagram a while ago, showing that, and it was just a lot of fun this winter. Days are short, right, and not a whole lot to do. I know a lot of people were having wonderful success with owls this year, and one of the guests on the podcast, Lydia, uh, yeah. Ladybug, is that right for her? Yep. For Lydia for Instagram. 
she's one of the best. I mean, these times, if you're not following her, I mean, her photography is fantastic and her captions. I, every day, you know, I look forward to the captions and I tell you more often than not, I laugh just what she comes up with. She's so, so ingenious with it. So that's somebody to, to look for on, on Instagram. But this winter has been phenomenal for owls in Ontario. Uh, tremendous. And elsewhere too, obviously. I've seen a lot in Manitoba and in Yellowstone too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yellowstone's had a lot of owl activity. While we were there, there was rumor of a couple spots but i didn't want to go just traipsing around looking when i didn't really know for sure what we were looking at or for or what was in the area because there's there's always opportunities for other things there but and we had a short time relatively so i didn't uh didn't venture out but there were some people that got some crazy owl images and i know it was right in the time frame of while we were there you were there with Jason, right? The two you guys were together yeah. on that trip. Well, Jason had a, had done a previous trip, and I was there on his second one. Yeah, and today is Tuesday, March fifteenth, when we're when we're recording this, and there's already bears making their appearance in oh yeah the Greater Stone the Greater Yellowstone wow. ecosystem. Yep. So it's such a mild winter that the lots of bears are already starting to come out of the den. So. That's another reason he doesn't want to just be traipsing off in mm. nowhere necessarily without the proper, you know, <laughs> definitely right gear. Um, there's something else, if, if I can just take a second about the R5. I mean, I think most most people recognize this with mirrorless, and I know it's, I think it's been touched on with the podcast, and Mike can cut it if you don't want to keep it in too, but it's just all the extra stuff that's required when you switch to mirrorless in these higher content cameras, right? Higher... Uh, files, uh, bigger sensors, and video. And I know Michael's talked about, you know, the the challenge of, of hard drive space and and that is 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 real. Um, I want to give a shout out to Joe and Chris, the Nature Four Guys podcast. They put up a YouTube mm-hmm. episode this week where Chris was talking about his having to buy a new MacBook in order to edit the footage from the R5 which I had to do as well, even though I'm not, I'm collecting video, but not doing a lot of editing with it yet. I'll call you on that, Ron. But the <laughs> other thing that Chris had set up and he outlined in, in the YouTube video this week was the Atomos Ninja 5 Plus, I think is the... Ninja 5 Plus, yep, is what he was using. So I've been thinking yeah. about that as well. I know I priced it out when I ordered the R5, but never, never purchased it, but... The idea of having a larger screen has a lot of appeal in, in the field. Mind you, it's a bigger rig, right? And then having the SSD plugged into it, so you're not using all your camera's memory, but you get you can throw a two terabyte SSD on where your the largest card you could put in your camera is a one terabyte. So there's some advantages two, to that as well. It's crazy. I don't want to go there. Yeah, I still haven't filled yeah. it, but. I need to sell a car before I can buy a two. Right? No, how much was it? I don't want to talk about it. That's why I shouldn't have brought it up. It was it was it was one thousand dollars. But it, 
I have two 512s wow. and, and the two bad, actually. To, to operate it. But that's then it doesn't stress the camera if you're recording directly into the Atomos, right? Mm-hmm. And like you say, it's... It doesn't... It never... You never overheat. So the R5, that was the problem is you've got those limiting or limitations. But if you're recording to the Atomos, you don't overheat the camera because you're not heating up the sensor, basically. A small rig that he'd used to mount it. And I had it, I had the mm-hmm. page opened in my Safari as things I, my little wish list, I kind of keep them open or interest me. The B&H had it for, oh, you're going to teach for 119 bucks. No, this is the, so it has the, but it fits the bottom too. Cause I want, I don't want to take the batteries off. So that was oh, yeah. one of the tips about the R5 is the grip gives you two batteries. And since it's somewhat compared to DSLRs, and maybe mm-hmm. the newer mirrorless coming out, it's a bit of a challenging camera for battery use. Having the two for field work and buying, so, and I have bought two extras, right? A hundred bucks each. So for, uh, upon, mm-hmm. you know, it was Jason and, and Ron, your, your advice to do that, smart, to have the extra ones, but less changing to have the grip. But yeah, the small, you can also get the small rig that encompasses the small, the full grip. The battery grip, the battery but grip. I didn't yeah. order it. Now it says it's it's you know will be coming soon, and two to four weeks or something. But that's something on B and H, so that would facilitate mounting the Atomos Ninja squarely on top for the rig. Then that, that's what mm-hmm. Chris had set up. But that that's sparked my attention as well or my interest. I, I think I might do that. But it's and the bigger screen is is I think I'm it's be more than twice the size would be helpful, I would guess. Right. The other thing is, or the other advantage to that Ninja uh, 5 Plus is you can record 8K 60 frames a second on the Ninja 5 Plus, where you can only record 8K 30 on the camera itself. So the ProRes RAW, is that is that 8K 60, or you can set mm-hmm. it at whichever one you want, but it's no, you could set it at 24, what, Mike, 20, 24, 25, 30, 60. Yeah. The rod gives you a lot more flexibility, um, a lot more flexibility in, in post with the color correction, which I'm still not good at. But uh, that, and well, and Michael's talked about it a lot. You've been doing film forever, and that's kind of an art form in and, to, yeah, in and of itself, right? I think you can make a whole career out of it, or you can definitely make a whole career out of it. So, and you, you can't do it with just like an MP4 or an MOV file. You don't have the flexibility. Right. So recording in the, the raw on the Ninja and having that extra disk space, it's, that's a huge advantage. He said something that I haven't spoken to him uh, since that. Uh, he said something about having to change off the, the camera stabilizer to be able to switch the settings for video to 8k does it have to stay off then the ibis yes so you've got that moving sensor but of course the recorder the external recorder that you're using doesn't have it so if the sensor's moving it's going to mess with your footage oh that's logical that makes sense so So, okay well you guys were talking about stabilizers earlier i don't use the stabilizer ever on video so that's right of course, yeah. So if you're yeah, anchored so to if a you're tripod, video, yeah. you're probably going to have it off anyway. Yeah, video. The stabilizer adds motion, does it not? It's in effect. It's getting better. It used to be really, really noticeable, where it would be kind of jittery. 
especially like if you were trying to shoot slow motion, mm. it would turn that jitter into slow motion. But I watch stuff now and it's better for sure. And a lot of people do it. You know, if you're hand holding it, you, you want to do it, you know, you'll need it for that. Right. But if you're on a tripod, then you don't want it just cause it's always, you know, at the end of a move, it might have that little just shift. That's a challenge with these cameras too. I, I was doing that with the caribou when I was switching from stills to video or video, it's like a, a brief clip handheld trying to get that. But I, I learned, I mean, if I seriously want to get any volume of video, it's got to be on the tripod. It's only if something, you know, the tripod's not with me, they're sparring. I can, there's movement that's tolerable between the camera and the animals Then I'll do handheld. But, but what's challenging I find is some of these changes to settings because you're in the heat of the moment. You anchor it on the tripod, forget to turn off the stabilizer. Or you take it off and switching back to stills, forget to turn it on. Or the mode settings to switch from still to video mode where you have your pre pre-programmed settings in. You know, at first I forgot to do that, so I'm just recording, but you know, it's not the pre-programmed settings. So it's keeping your head in the game as 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 you know, nature wildlife photographers with this tech all this modern technology is is a learning curve and a focus to make sure you do it if you're hybrid doing different things, right? Yep, for sure. Let's roll out a couple pro tips. Mark, you've, you've given and prompted a couple. Well, I'll, uh, mine's easy. It's quick, (laughs) quick and clean tonight. Not quick and, Sorry, quick and clean. Yeah, um, I got uh, my backpack. Uh, there's all different brands that the podcast has talked about, and you know, any one of of the podcast's favorites could and probably should start sponsoring the fantastic work that you guys <laughs> are doing on a regular basis. And honestly, yeah, there's. Uh, I'd like to get into more of that before the podcast is over because, uh, you know, you guys have really done so much. And it's been such a an, an evolution, and the guests are always fantastic in stories. Hearing new stories from new people, new experiences, new types of photography, new geographic destinations, new species is one of the highlights of Wild and Exposed. That I mean, the audience can't help but love. And to get to meet so many of these guests has been and is a, a privilege. And you guys hit it out of the park. But not only that, the, the work that you all do to show up punctually together, caring about this production and and putting together a top-notch show, whether there's a guest or not, whether it's a catch-up episode, um, to the audience every week. Uh, hats off, guys. It, honestly, a fantastic job. I admire all of your work ethic and professionalism and, and your love of this game of wildlife, nature photography, the equipment, you all bring different flavors that are so complimentary to the show. Um, love, all, love you guys uh, for all kinds of reasons. And, and I just want to say this because I know the audience is appreciative. I mean, Michael, your work on editing and promotions and, and, and running the operation, I mean, your drive is, is second to none. And, the audience just, I just want to pleasantly remind everybody that, you know, what goes into this and any support, you know, that you guys 
can give back to Michael and Ron and Jason, you know, whether it's buying a shirt for your buddy or what it, or telling people about the show because you guys put your heart and love into it. And it's, it's clear, you know, the guests feel it. You're uh, Jason coordinating the schedule, lining things up, getting things, you know, everybody on cue. Ron, your your knowledge of equipment and just your easy manner and, and your s- suave, is that right? Suave voice, is that it? Is that, is that right? I've never Bougie. been told that before. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Bougie. <laughs> so just, I just want to take a moment and just remind our esteemed and wonderful audience that there's a lot of work behind this fantastic Wild and Exposed podcast and you guys deserve an applause. Four years running and, and still going, and and the content is is phenomenal. You're, you're like the quiz with with Drew and and um, Isaac. So much fun listening to that. You know, it's and the easygoing banter. I've always loved that about our friendships and and the back and forth, the jokes, the the no need for an ego. We're in this because we love it. Right. And you guys, it resonates and, and the sharing, the content, the sharing of content, the tips, the, the acknowledgements that we don't know everything. Like three of us have three, three different stabilizing settings on our lens. Cause <laughs> well, why? Because there are three settings. Why not pick all three? <laughs> right. Yeah. Somebody's got to do it. Yeah. So I, and I just, um, just want to pleasantly remind the audience of what these three gentlemen do to bring you content on a weekly basis. And whenever you have an opportunity to show them some love of any sort, well, almost any sort, please, please do so. All right. Back to the, back to my little pro tip. Well, so, thank you before you go into your pro tip. <laughs> oh, it's, it's deserved. Yeah. And you got, yeah, I, I, everybody's busy in life, you know, as, as we all know, but you bring uh, an hour or two of enjoyment escape into a pastime that your audience loves every week and that's a commitment and the fact that you you all do it so reliably is something that i think needs and and should have recognition and and gratitude for and for those that that enjoy it and learn from it teamwork makes a dream work baby. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah everybody needs to laugh more and, and you guys help every single week there's always laughs and chuckles and enjoyment pleasant ambiance atmosphere Love it. Keep keep on trucking and yeah, keep showing the love to the to the wild and exposed guys here, please. So as I was saying, there's all kinds of different uh, camera packs. I picked for the R5. I picked up a Think Tank uh, sling pack off B and H for like 135 dollars, if I remember correctly. It's interesting. It's got a few pouches on it and stuff. I'm not sure I'm a lover of this uh, of how it feels on long hikes that I'm because it's on one shoulder and moves. I haven't mastered that. I prefer the backpack with the, with a waist belt, you know, and it can fit more in my backpack as far as a day hikes requirements, extra clothes and gear and stuff. This has got a little extra room. Uh, It's a good pack for $135. I don't think you can go wrong. So I'm not convinced it'll be my go-to for longer field days compared to the backpack this year. But why I'm bringing it up is um, 
Now, this is where Joe Subaleski, who's been on the podcast, who's a fantastic photographer, his wood duck stuff on Instagram this week has been phenomenal. And it's fun to see his behind the scenes. A great guy, great human being and photographer. He mentioned about mirrorless cameras, about the constant battery drain. And it's probably been touched on at some point in the podcast, if not more than once. But at first, you know, I was leaving my, my batteries in the R5. It's like, how bad can it be? But if you leave it for a week or two, it's it's significant. So Joe had done a, a story on his Instagram, and it showed an elastic on the bottom of his R5 on his grip, holding the battery pack in, but he had the lock open, and that separated it so it wasn't connected to the battery. And you can see, as Joe pointed out on the top of his R5, that the LCD was operating even when the camera was off, constantly minimally but constantly draining the battery so i haven't left mine in like joe had done but that's one way to do it he had that elastic and it just had unhooked the latch but on the, on the back of this i can do this with dropping my r5 on the floor there's a flap it's kind of like you know those onesies those red onesies where they used to have a, a flap at the <laughs> at the back <laughs> So this comes with a flap and sometimes, well, it's Velcroed, it can come out. So it kind of protects the camera, but what I've done, and I'm not sure this is going to be foolproof. I mean, hope, hopefully it won't cause any damage or anything, but so far it's worked for me. I just pull my battery out and stick it in there behind that to easily put in the R5 when I go, when it's in storage. You know, if I'm, if I'm going to be out filming every day, I may not do that, but so for now, that's how I've been doing it. So just a reminder, and I assume it's like this with all mirrorless cameras, but with the R5 anyway, is to be mindful of battery drain. Sorry for hitting the microphone. And and think about ways to manage that for when your camera's in storage. And I guess the point is always for me, by, by putting the batteries there, they're right next to the camera. I'm never going to misplace them or go take me long to find them or zip them out of another pouch or something. Does that qualify? Sweet. That qualifies. That's a great idea. Yeah. I actually have noticed that drain and never done anything about it. So that's a, I think I learned something. Well, it might help overall battery life too, right? Over years, maybe. A constant drain. And they all, yeah. all these lithium yeah. batteries are Absolutely. You know, something I'm cognizant of with the, the new iMac is, you know, Andrew, my son's in, in computer profession. He's like, they're all meant to have so many cycles so many drains and that's how it's aged it's not a shutter count like we were used to on dslrs it's how many cycles your your batteries lithium ion which is in your your laptop or these camera batteries go through so if it's a constant drain you know which leads to more charges every year they won't last as long one would guess michael how about you i have a really lame one but that's because it was spot or we, I wasn't sure we were doing because I threw it on you. Yeah, and I might have done it before, so you guys have to say if 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 we have or not. But it's kind of speaks to this morning. So this morning I flew back from Anchorage, and I got to Denver, and I got my bags, and I was traveling with one of the big sixteen fifteen. Is it sixteen fifty and sixteen fifteen big Pelican cases? Mm -hmm. That one doesn't come out on the luggage. Um, carousel they'll usually put it up in the oversized some places it'll come off in the 
carousel, but most of the time it's an oversized. So I get there, I find my two bags that came off in the luggage carousel, go over to the oversized, and it's not there. And the place is a ghost town because it was a super early flight, right? It hasn't got busy yet. So I sauntered over to the woman that was sitting there that could track the bag. And I was like, so can you just check and make sure this bag is here? You know, just make sure it made it to Denver. And then from there, I guess I'll, if it's here, I'll just wait and then we'll just see. So long story short, I sat there and waited for probably 30 minutes, nothing. And she finds is like, you know what? We'll just deliver it to you, you know, just head out. And uh, she took all my information. They had, they knew what the bag was, but at that point, I was like, I wish I had taken pictures of what was in that bag because I didn't, I, I knew some of the, I had a great big Sackler tripod head, you know, many thousands of dollars. I had some, uh, camera stuff. I had three lenses and an R5 in there. So I had tons of really expensive stuff, but I'm like, do I even know what is in there? So pro tip number one, I guess it's a two parter, um, just take a picture with your cell phone before you pack it up. And I do that sometimes, but I've just gotten out of the habit because United has been pretty good about getting my bags to me every time, anywhere. I've not had one lost in forever. You know, with the computerized system, I think it's pretty good. Anyway, I turns out I did get it. I was leaving the airport, just kind of resigned to the fact that it's going to show up at my house if it is indeed in Denver at some point today. And they would just deliver it. But I, just when I got to the car rental place, the woman called and she's like, I found it, I found it. And so I was able to turn around and go back and get it and meet her out on the sidewalk and throw it in the truck. But take a picture because if you're traveling around, that is one way to know exactly what's in that bag. The second thing that I'm, I've done and it's actually in there because she was asking me, she's like, well, what kind of markings are on it? What kind of stickers are on it? What's on it? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't remember. I have a bunch of these, so I'm not sure which one I had. I know I write on a Sharpie on the outside, like a silver Sharpie or a gold Sharpie, a phone number and an email address. So that was there. But do you guys ever go to FedEx and you get these little sticky um, Ziploc? What I've done on all my cases is I pull the top foam out out of the top lid. And I'll stick one of these, and these are Ziploc kind of style. And then I throw my address and all that stuff in here, along with, like, manuals, too. So this is big enough. It's like a gallon-sized Ziploc, but it's a FedEx-style sticky back thing. Just stick that to the back of your Pelican case or the lid of your Pelican case. And then if it does get lost, legitimately lost, that's at least you know that your information's on the inside, and, and it can be found, but then it's a great way to just keep all that stuff in one place. If you're going to put manuals or a Macbeth chart or, you know, some sort of focus chart or something like that, it just keeps it nice inside these little sticky envelopes. That's my pro tip. And then whoever stole it will at least know where to send a thank you letter. Or where to come get more stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I take pictures of a lot of things when I travel, you know, you, where you parked and, and all that kind of stuff. But I have not thought of taking pictures of the inside of my gear bag to know what was there. That's a great idea. Yeah. I can remember the big stuff, but I had no clue. I mean, there's tons of cables and caps and just the miscellaneous stuff would probably hit their limit on what they're willing to pay you. 
that doesn't mm. even count the big stuff that was in there. But I don't know how any other yeah. way to travel. I mean, there's no other way I can. I had I was carrying on all the big stuff that the red cameras and stuff. I had those with me, but the other stuff was yeah. all there. So, Jason, how about you? Uh, well, mine tonight's going to be um, gear related. I've kind of <laughs> taken Mike's lead on this, I think, the, and yeah, the easy way out. out. <laughs> no, no, it's not a it's not the easy way out. I mean, that's a great idea. I mean, honestly, that's a <laughs> another perfect one the um that i've learned something um but tonight i'm i'm i just bought a new so everybody's i think heard of peak design now peak design's a new company fairly new company that's kind of hit the market and they're in the photography world they're kind of hitting with a i think their first product was a uh like a little travel tripod uh really nice little design great tool i'm really compact um i don't have that that's not what i'm talking about tonight but they do also, they've come out with some other products recently. <clears throat> and one of the products they came out with was a was a phone case. And this new phone case they have, you know, works with, I think they've got both um, for the Apple products, obviously, and and uh, the and some of the newer phones. But you can see the little square in the back there um, if you're look, watching on YouTube. That actually is a, in, in it's a concave section. And they've also with this phone, it's, you know, the magnetic safe charges with the mag, all that good stuff. They've got a really good car mount for the car. So when you're out there off-roading and the magnet's strong enough that your phone's not going to fall off when you hit a good bump or anything, which is a big deal. Um, most of the ones I've tried before, and it and it also is a charger. Most of the time, I, the ones I've tried before, um, you know, phone just doesn't stick to it. So anyways, that's been great in and of itself. But they also make a ton of accessories back to Mark's idea with the action cameras, right? Well, they've essentially made a bunch of accessories for bike handles and all kinds of different, you know, uh, one that could hook to a pole, one that can, I can't remember, there's five or six different attachments that you have this, that concave part. So it really locks it in and you can, you know, you can basically make your phone an action camera, right? So you can actually put it on on your car or on your whatever on the bike or whatever and you can start using this and get the video from this with all the different attachments so i think that's kind of what their does their idea is is to allow you to be able to use your phone with their case and their products their attachments as more of an action camera instead of um you know instead of just using a gopro or so did you say Osmo bike handles or, or bike handles mm. uh, <laughs> i probably said bike handles um i'm like what is bike <laughs> That Utah candles. <laughs> no, so you mean the handlebars, right? On a bike or something. <laughs> handlebars, yes. Handlebars. And I can't remember all the different attachments, but. What are you, um, you were showing us the back of the phone. Is there something where it clips in or is it just a magnet? Well, I think it's just got an extra, it's got an extra powerful magnet with that, with that concave area where it fits in and really locks it on um, so that you can go, you know, do your stuff and not worry about your phone falling off. Um, and I haven't tried those attachments. I'm just throwing out that as a, as a tip for folks that are using action cameras and that, you know, you always have your phone on you, right? So why not, you know, have the opportunity to use it as an action camera as well. So it's the best action there's my camera. Tip. It really is. It's the one you always have on you at your fingertips, right? So, and the battery lasts pretty good on them for the most part and <laughs> things like that too. So it's my landscape camera. My my, my yeah, trusty be in mine most of the time wide too. angle right <laughs> so we haven't had one of these for quite a while and when when we were in yellowstone we were standing there at this hold on is this your pro tip this black bear oh, okay 
Yes. Okay. I'm getting to well, it. Well, no, I just, just want to make sure you're not get, going into it. Give me some latitude. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I'm sitting there talking to Kate and Adam Rice, and we were talking about dippers, and I was telling them about this great little sequence I had, but I had hit record before, and and when I when I pressed record on this dipper video, it shut off. It stopped recording, and then I turned it on again when I was done. You know, because I, I couldn't see the light because there was a reflection on the screen. And and Kate said, you know, it seems to me that you have a lot more of these stories than most <laughs> other photographers. Well, <laughs> she's right. And I had another one this weekend. And it's definitely a pro tip for people that are using adapted lenses on any of these mirrorless cameras that are coming out. Because you've got, you know, Nikon's got the Z mount, Canon's got the R mount but I was using an EF lens. So I've got the adapter plus the camera. Okay. Now this is getting to my, getting to my pro tip. Do not carry your camera by the neck of the lens. I had, fortunately I had a, uh, like a sling. I was photographing a hockey kids hockey tournament and I had a sling screwed into the foot of the lens. And I think that saved my bacon, but I was carrying the camera by the neck of the lens or I picked it up by the neck of the lens. And now there's two mount releases. You've got the one on the adapter and you've got the one on the camera. I always think about the one on the camera, but I did not think about the one on the adapter and I loosened it and, or released it, I guess when I slung the, the camera and lens over my shoulder, that thing popped the camera body off. And it fell, fortunately, only on a table. Didn't fall all the way to the floor. And fortunately, it landed flat, so I didn't crush my screen, my LCD screen, or anything like that. But don't carry it by the neck when you've got an adapted lens on there. Because you're going to, at some point, hit that release. That is my pro tip. Throwing myself under the bus <laughs> once again. Thanks a lot, Kate, for pointing that out. <laughs> Got to keep you honest. <laughs> Got to keep me honest. <laughs> so, so wait a minute. I'm I'm a little confused, and not to not I'm not to drag this out too long because I know this is embarrassing for you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but you want to talk about it a little bit more for that specific? <laughs> Let's talk just a, just a minute. No, no, no. I'm trying to figure out how the push record before and after had played oh, into just it. another screw up, right? She, yeah, that was my other screw up that I was oh, telling okay. Kate about. Right, we I don't need you. to talk about that anymore. <laughs> Because it had okay, nothing to do with alone. the actual pro tip. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tracking. That's now. just how we got to these stories. Yeah. Well, we're in season five and I've I've had multiple scenarios. Incidents. <laughs> multiple scenarios that that other people can learn from and I hope you don't have to learn for yourself. Learn from Ron. We'll call that series Learn from Ron. Just then need to start creating so, a new segment. Yeah. Let's let's not. Let's try not to. Well, Mark, thank you very much for coming on tonight. I know there's been a ton of people. I mean, you gave us all the all the accolades and and like I said, I appreciate that and thank you for that. But there's been a ton of people asking, you know, where's Mark? And it's just all we can say is Mark is screaming busy. So 
we uh you know and know there's other there's definitely other things in life and this definitely will not be the last time we see you one time i want to talk to you next fall after fall colors and see how you feel about the the canon sensor versus the nikon sensor when there's you know that that big color range because that's that's the only place that i really noticed it but it's not it's not significant enough to to make you quit using it but there is a difference i think um but thank you for everything that you've done for the podcast as well because you you threw a lot of shout outs to everybody but you left yourself out of that and there's been a lot of contributions at mark rock raycroft radio voice is what everybody misses uh, well there's certainly you know i've i've loved i've loved being on and and look forward to popping on now and then with you guys and listening in for sure every week and hearing about I me mean, personally i mean i'm looking i hope the the texts the calls keeping will obviously always keep in touch with stuff but just hearing the evolution of what you guys are doing you know and from the Honestly, I, I could get I could get emotional in a second here with the, the love and the history of the podcast and, and this fun project. I mean, from the first episode of uh, filming it in in your basement, Ron, in Wyoming, when you so graciously hosted Michael and I and took us to so many great things, including what's uh, on your doorstep timeways right now with the Gross Lex and Sage Gross Lex mm-hmm. and uh, phenomenal stuff. But the recording the one our very first podcast that we put out about michael's antarctica trip right from day one it's it's been a lot of fun it's i think part of it is this project is significant it's significant to all of us ever and but it also requires an honest serious time commitment from everybody and you guys for the past many months have been holding far more of that responsibility than I have. And so at some point it's looking myself at myself in the mirror and saying, you know, if I'm part of the regular podcast team, I have a responsibility of so much time and work commitment to help this project grow. And I came to the conclusion that with all the projects I have going on to create revenue, to try and keep the world going, for my expenses and so on, I didn't have in my honest, in my heart that or the time to give as much as you guys are, and it's not fair for that. I can't I can't just come on you know every five weeks and say, hey guys, I can do another podcast with you. How are you doing? <laughs> and expect an equal part of the show, equal part of the potential success which this show deserves, right? It. Everybody knows, but it's an equal player. Every it's a partnership, and with any anything in life, if if I just I don't currently have the time with what I have to do to do as much as I I, I am obligated to for the Wildness Exposed podcast. There's it's I love you guys and the show as much as ever. I think it's I think it's phenomenal. But I, 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 in no thing in my life do I want to be the weak link, and time commitment's important for this project, and so I, I look forward to being on, when it's when it suits you guys, mm-hmm. but at the same time I don't want to 
uh, it to be unpredictable, right? It's it's not fair. Sure. And and I, I like to think of myself as an honest, responsible person that way. And, and you know, after our, these many months and my un, inability to commit as much as as I should be, at some point, it's like, well, hey, you know, I can't I can't just uh, keep expecting that. So, for that reason, you know, I um, yeah wanted to you know say everything I did and more about each one of you. And, you know, someday, Jason, soon, you've got to show up in the field where I am. Stop avoiding me, man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think we're getting close. I'm going to, oh, I can't wait yeah. for that day to happen. It'll oh, happen. Obviously. And, It'll and happen. I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this has been one of the longest running, most uh, interesting, rewarding projects of my life and the camaraderie and friendship. I, I am extremely grateful for it and look forward to that continuing. And I, I can't wait to get in the field with you guys. One thing about these past couple of years, my prank quota is way, way down. I'm <laughs> on my own way too much. And I'll tell you something. It gets tiring trying to prank yourself on stuff. You know, it just doesn't work the same. As you get a little, get a little older though, that'll get easier. It's kind of scary. I'm not going to go there. That's kind of scary. Yes. Who tied my hiking boots together? Oh, again, that's happened yesterday. Um, but I, for all those reasons, I can't wait to be in the field. And, and if it's working on content for the show with you guys, you know, I'd love to do it. Or if it just happens to be, it happens to be. But um, you, all, you guys are fantastic human beings. And I think that's something the audience recognizes first and foremost. And that's where the loyalty comes from. You know, you're modest, you're talented, you're intelligent, you're, you're reliable, you're good people. And I, I'm honored to call you all friends and, and I love you guys. So lots more to come. Mark just can't be on enough to be, you know, to justify the slice of the pie, but I, I won't be too far away. You can always pull a Tom Brady. Well, it's a pretty thin slice, right? Yeah, there. yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I did that. I did pull a Tom Brady. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, but you know, some, some who was it? Was it? Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did Michael Jordan come out of retirement more than once? Somebody did. Well, he went and played baseball, well, and then he came back I, and played basketball. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know if you count the baseball yeah. thing. I'm, you know, I'm far from retiring. That's not happening. But yeah, it's. Uh, I'm not far away. So if if uh, if you guys need a guest, fire me a text, and I'll happily Absolutely. tell or listen to your stories anytime. Well, let us know when your book goes out because mm -hmm. we'll we'll push that out there. Yeah, for sure. Well, September. Yeah, it, that's that's the plan. And it hasn't knock on wood. You know, things have. There've been shipping issues all across the planet with different products and things are happening close by and far away, whatever it might be. So hopefully it'll be no problems. It shouldn't be. There's never been any hiccups. So, I mean, excitedly, I'm, we're going to take pre-orders. I'll have the, the cover mock-up. It'll be up on the website. And, you know, f for those people who have enjoyed the books I've put together before, this will be very similar in field, but equally important about an, an amazing species. And I mean, People from my Instagram know that caribou are a big part of what I do, and and 
yeah, they have, this this project has just um, resonated so importantly, and and I appreciate them that much more. And there's a lot to be shared with it. The final chapter in the book is photographing caribou. So lots lots Sweet. of tips and insights into all aspects of what I do in the field with caribou to complete the book in in a really pleasant way. So yeah, but thank you. It, it'll. I can't wait to see it, you know, and um, there's something else I wanted to say about the podcast, too, is is um, the, that's not it, um, you guys, the tours on the website, there's another one that's come up, so to, just to mention that as well today before, that, um, to draw attention to people who want to meet the Wild and Exposed hosts, have the privilege of being in the field and learning from you and sharing your company there, those opportunities are there now. As easy as looking at the yeah, websites. Starting. There's a few spots left on the Alaska bear, the second Alaska bear trip. Oh, since you're talking about that, we should talk about the sponsor too, because precision camera is doing the same thing we've talked about for the last several weeks. An additional 10% of used camera gear. So if you want to buy the new R5 or R1 or 400, well, no, what is it? 800, 5.6, 1200, what, F8? If you want to buy any of those and you want to trade in your gear, then you'll get an extra 10% with Precision Camera. And you just have to, when you're doing it, when you're sending your little um, description in of what you've got in the more info spot, just put wild and exposed and then they will add an extra 10 percent to the quote that they send back to you everything you said mark right right back to you as well oh yeah it's, thanks man it's thanks it's been a good run and we will get oh. you back on one of these times when we're doing trivia with Drew <laughs> as well. yeah, sure 100 percent. that'd be fun <laughs> absolutely yeah, I, I look forward to that we learned a lot on this uh, on this whole experience for me and and yourself included so love you buddy yeah, man. I love you too. And always learning, right? That's, yep. that's the sharing. That's this podcast from each other, from the audience, from the, from the world. I mean, learning never stops. Nobody wants that. So this is a great, a great network and podium in a sense for that sharing that opportunity. So yeah, our, somebody's got to tell us, but tell me message into wild and exposed about the settings. Chaz, Joe, <laughs> one, one, two or three guys. Or 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 just the differences too. It was surprisingly hard to find without calling mm -hmm. Canon. I expected, you know, with the university or the school of YouTube that it would just pop right up. It wasn't that straightforward. And those lenses, man, we gotta stop this podcast. One fifty an hour and fifty five. <laughs> man, that eight hundred five six <laughs> Did I do it again? Did it freeze? Um no. the one no. eight the eight hundred five no, six uh yeah. I, I have so many things I could say. I researched that thing. The price point was like hurt the head. But <laughs> if you watch on YouTube, it, it, what what intrigued me, you know, the price point frightened me worse than on Halloween kind of thing. But it was light. It's the size of like the 600 F4. You could hand hold it. An 800 5.6. And you guys could correct me on this if you believe differently. But... So a 600 f4, you've got that focal length, and it's f4, so you've got a smaller aperture. But an 800 5.6 increases focal length, so you should still have decent bokeh at 5.6, mm -hmm. I would think. 
with the yeah. longer mm-hmm. lens. Oh, Terrible, yeah. right? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was appealing. But, and I, I, I did message Canon to ask about this. And of course, I said this wasn't the case. There's more elements. But if you watch YouTube, there are some YouTube reviews or comments or, or, or popular photography channels that cover this about these two lenses. And how could they make these lenses so compact? I love the idea. It's really exciting, but I, I don't really want to say much more. I uh, <laughs> there's the theories. there are there are yeah. conspiracy theories which may or may not be accurate. It doesn't sound like it because they say there are more elements in them. But uh, there was a fellow from Australia who has a, a photography wildlife photography, primarily birds. I um, I can find his name, but it's not off the top of my head. But he he. I watch his YouTube show frequently, and he had the two lenses, not physically in this case. There were ones with people having them in the field, but he had them side by side on a graphic of the 400-2.8 and the 800-5.6 and the 600-4 and the 1200. F8. Uh, what's the aperture? F8. Eight. Yeah. And, I, yeah, anyway, there's some conspiracy theories out there. <laughs> One last time, officially... Why don't you go ahead and sign us off? Oh, I can't remember how to do that. It's been a while. It's been a while. (laughs) You've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed Podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday Nothing's gonna get in our way We will be the biggest band in town Mm -mm. Round and round the world we'll go